Locked on NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we'll stop in the Bay Area to speak with Aliko Carter about the Warriors' big Game 4 win over the Pelicans. We'll go to Phoenix to chat with Evan Sidery about the Suns' hiring of Igor Kokoshkov. And lastly, we'll go to Boston to speak with Sam Packard about the Celtics' wizardry in taking a 3-0 lead over the Philadelphia 76ers. It's all coming up. The biggest stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hi guys, we're back for another Monday edition of the Locked On NBA podcast. I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd, also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball podcast and the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com. We're getting uh, very much stuck into the playoffs now, you know, winding towards the end of the second round. Some interesting things happening across the league, uh, coaching hires, big playoff performances. We're going to be covering a few of those in today's show. So let's get to it. Now it's time to bring in Aliko Carter, the host of the Locked On Warriors podcast, just after the Warriors wrapped up a resounding Game 4 victory over the New Orleans Pelicans to take a 3-1 lead in the series. Aliko, Game 3 was a little bit of a blip, but the Warriors starting the uh, death lineup for the first time ever, I believe, in their uh, in their careers playing together, they uh, they dismantled the Pelicans. They sure did. They dismantled them offensively, defensively, uh, and it started on the defensive end. I think they did a horrible job of running players off the line in Game 3. Game 4, they completely corrected that, and the Pelicans only shot 4 of 26 from 3. Ian Clark, 0 of 7. And uh, the reality is that the Warriors' defense has been swarming since the playoffs started. They turned on a switch. It hasn't gone off yet. And then, of course, Kevin Durant, they don't have anybody who can stop him. Uh, and he's just going to get his every single possession if they, you know, don't put size on him. And you put size on him, then you sacrifice uh, other, you know, positions. You sacrifice uh, being able to protect the rim. And uh, Kevin Durant just opened up everything for everybody else today with his offense. Uh, but started on the defensive end, definitely. The Warriors won three out of the four quarters and went out early in the first and then walloped the Pelicans in the third. And, you know, that's the difference in the game. Three of the Warriors' five starters, or three of the, that death lineup, shot under 40% in the game. Draymond Green, Iguodala, and Clay Thompson all shot under 40%, yet they still were able to pull away with a victory of over 25 points. A, a huge performance there. Um, one thing I do want to talk to you about, well, a couple of things, actually. Um, Steph Curry returned in Game 2, played off the bench, and looked looked fantastic. Wasn't quite the same in Game 3. How did he look here in Game 4? Is he looking like you know, he's shaking off the uh, the rust after coming back from that MCL sprain? Or what were your thoughts on Steph's performance? Yeah, I was watching him, and he seemed, honestly, a little slow on the court. He wasn't, he, he, and I, 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 had, I was wondering, you know, is the knee bothering him at all or his ankle, which he injured earlier in the season, re-injured on March 8th, uh, are those bothering him at all? Because he just seemed a little slow, but 
when you shoot four of nine from three, he's still, you know, chucking with reckless abandon, uh, still doing Steph Curry things. And uh, he just had not even a bad shooting night, 47% from the field tonight, but didn't do much of anything else. Didn't rebound the ball. He's a great rebounder at the guard position. Didn't assist the ball. I think that you got to give credit to the New Orleans Pelicans for their game plan on Stephen Curry uh, to kind of get him out of his game. He only played 32 minutes too. So that is, uh, you know, the highest point, uh, the highest minutes that he's played in the playoffs so far, but still not exactly, uh, you know, heavy, heavy minutes. But uh, yeah, he, he does look a step slow to me and, and maybe it's just rust. Well, he's going to have you know, a little bit of time to, to get prepared for, for the Rocket series. Potentially, we'll see how that all, all pans out. But he is working his way back. It's good to have gotten him back in this series, and they are coasting at the moment uh, 3-1 up. We saw Quinn Cook replace uh, pretty much all of Nick Young's minutes in this game. But one of the more surprising things that's happened throughout the playoffs in this series is the fact that Kevon Looney has gone from, honestly, a player who struggled to get into any rotation to being the Warriors almost... I don't know, would you class him as their sixth man at the moment? A guy who's playing the most minutes off the bench. He's their primary backup big, plays at the four and the five, and is playing well pretty much every game. How important has Looney been you know, throughout these playoffs? And how surprised are you that it's actually come to this, where he was a guy that was unplayable at early parts uh, of his career? Yeah, Looney coming off of major hip injuries, and his mobility was was horrible. His development... You know, he's a third year. His development is taken about that time. It's tough when you're young to come to a team like the Warriors, which are just such a well-oiled machine. But there's so many learning opportunities. And Kevon has been learning from Draymond about, about how to position his body. He's been learning about offense. He's got better footwork than he did last year. His defense has been absolutely incredible on Anthony Davis, on other players, rebounding the ball. Uh, though he only had three rebounds tonight uh, in 20 and a half minutes. But Kavan has been integral in allowing the Warriors to handle themselves defensively while also not being a liability on the offensive end. He's setting good screens uh, and running rim running occasionally, which has uh, led to for him which is always nice and uh you know that's that element that javel brings so much but he's a liability in this series because anthony davis is so fast so strong so skilled you got to put somebody who can hang with him out there and Kavan has been doing it with a plum one thing that uh, looney has done this season is his block and steal rates have, have gone through the roof according to clean the glass he's in the 89th percentile of big men in his block rate and 85th percentile of big men in his steal rate so that's obviously a fantastic thing how do you think that looney and now is in this rotational role like how could he how's he going to go in a potential matchup against the rockets in the next round does that pose problems and does that mean that kerr will have to shuffle those rotations again to perhaps get jordan bell back in there more david west maybe we see more zaza yeah how how does looney projector matchup in future series yeah i think looney is going to be tough out there unless they do a small ball five lineup with capella off the floor uh but it all hinges on when clint capella is playing in the game i think you'll see more zaza more javel against capella he's so big and so strong and he's going to uh and Zaza specifically has the ability to needle opponents, and that element has been sorely missing 
in this uh, playoffs. I think that's what you get from Zaza when he's out there on the court. JaVale McGee, obviously, is a little bit undisciplined. Uh, defensively, but is so athletic that he and big that he can hang with Capella a little bit more. Kevon Looney is definitely going to get minutes in this series if the Warriors do end up beating the Rockets, but uh, I, I'm not sure he'll be playing the same, you know, 20 to uh, 25 minutes a game that he's getting right now. I'm surprised we're not seeing a lot of David West, honestly, only played four minutes in this game. And I think against a team like the Rockets, you'll see more West out there with defense-heavy lineups. Uh, the lineup of West, Sean Livingston, Andre Iguodala, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green, extremely skilled defensively. Uh, you'll see that out there, definitely, and you'll probably see uh, Kavan out there with that unit as well in place of David West. Well, Aliko, we are we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. That the Warriors still have one more game to win to get through to the conference finals. They've got Game Five back in the Bay Area as they look to close out this series against the Pelicans, and they are going to be overwhelming favourites to do that. If you want to hear more about the Warriors and how their playoffs are going, and in, in all the nitty gritty detail about all these games, make sure you're checking out Locked On Warriors with Aliko. Go and check out that five days a week, Aliko. Aliko, thank you for jumping back onto Locked On NBA once again, and I'm sure I'm going to be having you on uh, as the season continues and the Warriors get down to the pointy end of things. Absolutely. Thank you, Josh. Now we welcome in the host of the Locked On Suns podcast, Evan Sidery, to speak about the Phoenix Suns and their uh, their new head coach, Igor Kokoshkov, who was uh, recently signed during the week to become uh, the Suns' new head coach after the Suns decided not to uh, pursue the Jay Triano route. Evan, um, how, uh, I know there's lots of debate amongst Suns fans about how they would best approach this coaching hire and the decision they ended up making. Where do you fall on the Kokoshkov scale? Um, I thought it was a home run hire. I'm probably higher than most people on the hire itself because Kokoshkov was a guy that me and my coach, Brandon Clean, have been targeting the entire time of the coaching search because he fits all three things the Suns have been looking for. He's, he's a young guy. He's only 46 years old. His main thing is developing players. He's helped countless point guards such as Goran Dragic, Ricky Rubio, George Hill. He's also held big men in Utah such as Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors to a really big extent so far, like David Locke told us last week on Locked On Suns as well. But he fits so many different things that they're looking for as far as like a disciplinary coach. He's someone that's going to be a non a non BS sort of coach. He's not going to let people just walk over him like some former coaches in the past in Phoenix, like Earl Watson. So I think it's very interesting how he's sort of the perfect guy that if they're they want to keep developing guys like Marquise, Chris, Dragon, Bender. Not going to get up on those guys just yet. I think Igor is the ver- probably the best hire on the market outside of Mike Boonholzer after that whole situ- situation really fell through a couple weeks ago. Um, look, I, I with you, I, I really like the hire. Look, no one's going to be a hundred percent sure how how pl- people are going to transition into a head coaching role. We don't know how all this is going to work out. But when you look at the process of of hiring guys like this, I, I really you know am huge on the Suns for doing this and for going the for the Kokoshkov route. Now, for people who don't know who he is, he, he's a, a Serbian who coached Slovenia to the latest EuroBasket Championship. But what else can you give people who don't know much about Igor? Um, what other information can you give about his background, where he's coached, what other things he's done leading up to this uh, yeah, promotion? He's, his entire coaching resume is one of the best overall I've seen out of all the candidates, even some head coaches like David Fisdale. He has a way bigger resume than him. He started off in 2003, I believe, under Alvin Gentry and the Los Angeles Clippers. He started off under Alvin Gentry and then, Quickly from there, he 
went from the NBA ranks to the Detroit Pistons and followed Larry Brown. He became a Larry Brown disciple alongside Quinn Snyder in Utah, and those guys learned under Larry Brown. And then he actually won a title in Detroit, which then pivoted himself over to a different position, which I believe was in Orlando. And he did a very good job of helping out of James Borrego, who was the actually associate head coach at the time, who was pivoted into the main role once Jacques Vaughn was fired a couple years later. But he's bounced around many different situations, such as really, like I mentioned, Quinn Snyder in Utah, most recently Larry Brown in Detroit. He also was, he stayed after Larry Brown left in Detroit. He was under Flip Saunders. And at, before he went to Orlando, he actually was with Cleveland under Mike Brown. So he was able to coach LeBron James. So he's had all these different really coaches in his head, like Alvin Gentry, Mike D'Antoni, all these different philosophies. And he said in multiple interviews before that I've watched that he's taken little bits and bits and pieces from all these coaches. And it seems like he's very ready for this. And after speaking, like I mentioned before, David Locke of Locked on Jazz, he's, if it really wasn't for his foreign label, I think he would have been a head coach a long time ago. He is the first foreign-born coach to become a head coach in the NBA, so that's that's a huge thing in terms of opening up that window. I thought it would always be uh, Torrey Messina who'd get that first gig, but Kokoshkov's had a lot of buzz for quite a, quite a while. The Utah Jazz people really do love what he's been uh, able to do with that team as an assistant coach. Now, Evan, one of the questions, that one of the things that gets posited quite a bit after this hire is the fact that he did coach um, Luka Doncic in that Slovenian national team to the Eurobasket Championships. So a lot of people are thinking, does this signify anything? Now, of course, it, it doesn't do anything in terms of Doncic being able to come to Phoenix because it's not like Doncic has a choice. It's not a free agency situation where he's going, oh, here's my coach. I'm going to go play for him. He isn't, yeah, he, Doncic doesn't have that decision to make. But of course, uh, Kokoshkov's going to have firsthand, uh, experience with, with dealing with Luca. Do you think, and this is sort of the way that, that I lean with this. I want to hear your take on it. Do you think that if the Suns are in that position and they do have the, the highest odds for the number one pick, but if they're in that position where Doncic is available to them, having Kokoshkov on board, do you think that that it leans them either way of doing that, whether that's the number one pick, the number two pick, the number three pick? Do you think that having Igor there, who has spoken glowingly about Doncic in the past, does that tip the Suns maybe towards moving that direction over perhaps a, a guy like DeAndre Aiden or if they're down a little bit lower, maybe a Marvin Bagley or whoever else they're looking at in that range? Absolutely. I think overall, like I mentioned previously, with guys like Dragon Bender and Marquise Chris, if Ryan McDonough, the general manager of the Phoenix Suns, hasn't given up on, on those two guys yet. They're both only 20 years old. They can be very good modern-day forwards in this league. And I think Luka Doncic is probably the sort of example that lock and key that can really unlock everything with this offense that they've been looking for, especially in Kokoskov's system. And I found it really interesting. I brought this quote a couple of days ago on Twitter, but Ryman did all have the quote for you right here. He said, with Igor, certainly that relationship and that experience helps. I don't think any team will be more prepared in terms of evaluating Luka Doncic and knowing everything about him than we will. So that sort of gives you a cue as to, I think, Luka and this thing, because I think what he's saying there, and it's pretty obvious, is Igor is going to be able to maximize everything that Luke has done. And I think it's the best overall situation for him in the entire lottery. So if they do land top two or top three, even number one, I think they would go with Luka Dodge over DeAndre Aiden because at this stage in their development and in their rebuild, I think him alongside Devin Booker and Josh Jackson has one of the best overall unique factors to this entire process. Yeah, that's the way I see it as well. As it look, yeah, you know, previously if I had to pick one, I would have gone Doncic, uh, irrespective of the coach. But having him there now, and it's not like, and you can make the argument that like, okay, he's coached Doncic before, so then maybe he knows. 
his uh, you know, his weaknesses and won't want to go that way. But the way that Kokoshkov has spoken about Doncic in the past, it makes you think that, no, no, he really recognizes how special this guy is. And if they do have an opportunity to draft him, that would, it maybe it tips it from a 50-50 into a 55-45, but it does to me, and you're backing that up there, yeah, lean towards them pushing in that direction. Now, in terms of, of playing style with what Kokoshkov has done, is there any indicators that say he's going to be playing you know, up-tempo, he's going to be defense first, he's going to be you know, Dantoni style, uh, heavy threes and layups. Yeah. You know, what sort of indication or, or what, what can we sort of expect style wise in terms of Koshkov's, uh, offensive and defensive philosophies? Now I went back and watched just a, a couple of games from Eurobasket. I had to dive in a lot more in the next couple of days, but I think his offense has a chance of being really, really innovative compared to most teams out there. He's going to bring a little bit of dimensions from Utah as far as dribble drive handoffs, all those screens and. Really, that's what's been tiring out Houston a little bit in this series, even though they're up three nothing. But they had, or excuse me, three to one. They had a couple opportunities there, and I think that really the energy they they expose on those sets is really really interesting to watch. But he brings a little bit from Phoenix as well from this time. Mike D'Antoni, the system with Utah, it's very up tempo, so he kind of blends in all these things together. And if you add in, I know I keep wanting to bring in back to Doncic here because I feel like he's sort of the perfect unique system guy that where if he has his point guard in place that they average about three to six passes per possession. I feel like with all the plus passes Phoenix already has in their system, I feel like it could really just be beautiful offense to watch. But as far as defense goes, I haven't really dove in much on Igor in that aspect, but I feel like with the way Utah's played, the way Detroit played under Kikoska with Larry Brown about 10 years ago, I think just those little bits and pieces he's brought alongside makes him into a really interesting two-way candidate. Well, we're going to be really interested to see how it works out, not only because he is the first foreign-born coach, but just a complete sort of change of style for what Phoenix has done in the past, what it means for Doncic. We are going to be checking out the uh, NBA lottery, which is coming up in approximately 10 days' time, I'm sure. Uh, you guys over at Locked on Suns and all Suns fans will be eagerly awaiting the uh, the result of that lottery to see how uh, Kokoshkov can, uh, can mold the future of the Suns into potentially a contender. Evan, thank you for jumping on, and if everyone wants to hear more about Igor, as Evan dives more into the film stuff, you can check out Locked on Suns throughout the week. Evan, thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem, Josh. Appreciate you having me. Brad Stevens has been performing a level of wizardry for the Boston Celtics, getting them up 3-0 over the Philadelphia 76ers. So we bring in Locked on Celtics' very own wizard, Sam Packard, to discuss the series so far. Sam, um, are you surprised by the uh, 3-0 scoreline so far in the series? I am surprised that it's it's 3-0 at this point, but I'm never really surprised that the, the Celtics have made it a series. The Celtics have the best defense in the league and have done a, a great job of keeping themselves in games for the entire year. Uh, I'm more surprised by the kind of the mistakes of the 76ers, uh, especially late in the game of Game 3. I thought Game 3 was kind of a sloppy game altogether, but the Sixers really gave it away. And so I'm not surprised by uh, the the Celtics and especially Brad Stevens putting his team in a position to win. You saw with his late um, ATO layups, uh, which is something you would expect in the fourth quarter or down the stretch of it. The Celtics are uh, themselves in a place to win. I'm more surprised by kind of the failures of uh, the 76ers shrinking away from the moment uh, out of Game Three. We could very easily be having a different discussion here because, as you mentioned, Game 3, they had three really sloppy turnovers at the end of regulation and in overtime. And in Game 2, they'd opened up a 20-plus point lead and it seemed like that they were going to you know, sort of reverse course from Game 1 and tie it up at 1-all. But some really sloppy 
play allowed the Celtics to get back in. And you'd never want to give this Celtics team any sort of a sniff of a comeback because they've pulled off comebacks that have seemed impossible throughout the entirety of the season. And any sort of opportunity they get, they don't seem to, um, that they never seem to fail to execute down the stretch of those sort of games as we saw, uh, in that, in that game three, in that overtime with their really easy layups to, to end up sealing the game off, of poor turnovers. Now, Jalen Brown has been dealing with, with a hamstring injury. He's played the last two games, but it's quite clear that he's not 100%, and it seems like he's going to be ready for Game 4, but he's still going to be on a minutes restriction. Do you think there's any merit in saying, look, if Jalen's not 100%, we've got a 3-0 lead, do we just really, really limit him or, or even sit him in Game 4 to enable him to rest it up? Because that hamstring could ping at any time, and then he could be gone for, for weeks rather than games. Yeah, he's still on a, a minute minutes restriction in game three he's not great right now uh going to the basket and being and being really explosive going to the basket which is a large part of what jalen brown um his offensive game has been this season i think think he can still be effective i don't think the Celtics are sit him i think if he can go the Celtics are going to play him they're never one to just rest for the sake of rest uh, but i do think they'll be cautious with him but i thought actually he was a he had a pretty big contribution in game three i'm thinking specifically at the end of the, the first half, he was a late substitution, but he came in and knocked down a brilliant design play by Stevens. He knocked a big three to, to cut the deficit after the Sixers went on a pretty big run. So I would expect to see him still to come off the bench. I don't think he's going to play more than 20, 25 minutes a game, but I don't think this, uh, this, the Celtics aren't ones just for resting people for the sake of resting people. Terry has obviously been fantastic replacing Kyrie Irving, but something that I'm not sure everyone would notice, I'm sure you would notice, is that away from home, he's not quite the same player. In the, the four games away from home in the playoffs so far, he has shot over 30% just once, and that was in game three against Philadelphia. And in general, his level of performance in those road games is you know, inferior to what he does at, at home, which is the case for, for many players, but he has been you know, really excellent. So do you think that there's there's anything in that? Is there any reason behind why Rosie is struggling uh, on the road relative to how he's playing at home? Uh, Rosier's a really a guy who plays with uh, confidence is a huge part of his game, and getting having a consistent role is a huge part of his game. I know, uh, but when he was backing up Kyrie Irving, he wanted more minutes, and the fact that he's uh, succeeded so much as he's become a starter has not been the biggest surprise to me, just because. He's the type of guy who, who kind of relies on that uh, that confidence and kind of that energy. And so it doesn't surprise me that he necessarily struggles on the road, but I think that's indicative of all um, world world players in the playoffs. But uh, I just think that he's the, he's the type of guy who kind of plays with the with the home crowd. He really uh, uh, gets it going when they get going. He seems to rise uh, big to the moment. Um, I don't know. I, I was uh, kind of more of a believer. He struggled on the road, but I did think he played quite well in Game Three, and, three and did hit some big shots. So uh, I don't know if that's a um, it just being a sample size. I do have confidence in him to play on the road, but you're right; it feels like he is more likely to hit the big shots and have those big moments uh, when he's playing in front of the Boston crowd. Now, there's been throughout this season, last season, basically all of his career, a lot of criticism of Al Horford. A lot of people don't appreciate just how good of a player he is. You know, why is this guy an all-star quoting, you know, mundane stats as points and rebounds and all this sort of stuff? So I'm going to give you an opportunity here to just tell us how important Al Horford has been, not only for this team during the season, but what he has done in the playoffs, because it's been an enormous load that he's carried and he's come through with flying colors. He is the Celtics' most valuable player. He was the Celtics' most valuable player, even when Kyrie Irving was still playing. He is the the best defender on the league's best defensive team. I think 
defenses are anchored around what he does. He has the ability to guard Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, and we saw um, a defense on Giannis. He has tremendous value for the Celtics, and we've seen him be incredibly efficient in the playoffs. He didn't have the best game in Game 3, but had some huge moments uh, down the stretch. His ability to shoot the three and space the floor, the Celtics are the best on offense and really put out create so much more space for them to attack the rim. I think it's been very effective in this season, or I'm sorry, in this series, um, drawing Joel away from the basket. And then his ability to shoot. He's been, um, frankly, amazing. And the, the fact that he's maligned uh, in Boston is incredibly frustrating. And it, it's kind of been the barometer of whether or not you have been paying attention to the games just because his value, if you watch all the games, you can kind of sense him just setting screens, him as a playmaker, uh, the, and especially him on defense has been the most important kind of steadying factor. The reason the Celtics can come back from all these games is he's, of course, he always plays correctly. Really someone that Brad Stevens relies on. He mentioned that after game three is that they just kind of turned to Al in the huddle and said, like, He's the leader. Let's follow him. I really do think he's been the Celtics' most important player, and we've seen that in playoffs where he's been, I think, the best player in the Buck series, definitely, and he's been better than Joel Embiid here. And uh, I said before the series, I thought it was going to be a, a little bit of a tougher go for the Celtics. I, th- I picked uh, the Celtics in seven, but I thought if the Celtics are going to win, Al Horford needs to be the best player in the series, and I think through three games, he's been the best player so far. Well, we are, we both had one thing in common in terms of predicting this series. We both thought it would go to seven. I had the sixes in seven. That's seeming, uh, extraordinarily unlikely at this point. Boston on the verge of getting themselves through to the conference finals. Sam, if everyone wants to check out a Celtics perspective on this series and at the further they go in the playoffs, they can check out Locked On Celtics. Thanks for coming on Locked On NBA to chat uh, Boston with us. Thanks for having me. Always, always a pleasure. Another episode of Locked On NBA in the books. Hope you guys are enjoying the playoffs as uh, as we push towards a uh, push towards a resolution of this 2017-18 NBA season. If you are listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, please make sure you go leave a five star rating and a review. And you can find us on all other podcast services: Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and of course Spotify as well. You can find me on Twitter at RedRock underscore Beeble and make sure you're checking out all the other hosts of the Locked On uh, NBA podcast and right across the network as well. You can follow us on Twitter at Locked On NBA Net on Facebook the same and all of our podcasts and written work is centralized at LockedOnSports.com. So make sure you're checking that out across the NBA, the NFL and now Major League Baseball. We are done here, guys. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.